Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. We're in for a treat today, folks. My guest is Dr. Lonnie Barback. She's considered the Dear Abby of sexuality and relationships for the baby boom generation. She's written books which have been published more than 4 million copies in the United States alone, plus Europe and Asia. You're going to hear everything you wanted to know, hopefully, but if we don't get to that, maybe part of everything you wanted to know, and we'll bring her back at another time, about human relationships. And we might, and we're going to talk about, by the way, the connection between human relationships and modern technology. And if we have some time, we'll get into sexuality because everybody wants to talk about sexuality. That is, when they're not doing sexuality. Hmm? But first, a few news and notes on psychology and medicine. Last time we were together, I talked to you about three major pieces of research relating to the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor Mind-Altering Antidepressant Drugs. What I told you was that there's been a, this huge amount of information that these drugs, Welbutrin, Effexor, Prozac, Zoloft, Abilify, Luvox, Anaphronil, that these medicines not only do not, again, not only do they do not do what they're purported to do, which is to be antidepressants, but they may actually be doing, and there's evidence to support the notion that they're doing damage. How is this, you may ask? How is it? I'm coming back to this because it's so important, by the way. For those of you who heard it last time, please forgive me. But this is really important stuff, because if millions of Americans are taking a medicine that they think is doing them good, and it's in fact doing them damage, we need to talk about it a lot, a real lot. So how did this come about? It came about in two ways. Number one, until these recent researchers were able to dig into the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration files under the Freedom of Information Act, until they were able to dig in there, the reports and the studies from the pharmaceutical companies were buried. And so as it turns out, if, the, if a pharmaceutical company did 100 pieces of research and 98 of them produced negative results, but only two of them produced positive results, the two positive results were enough to get the drug past the FDA and outsold to the public. That's what these researchers found out. You could have 98 negatives, two positives, and the drug gets sold. So that's number one. Number two, even though many, if not all, of these SSRIs were hardly able to beat a placebo in head-on-head -head studies, the placebo being a neutral medicine that does nothing, even though they were, they were hardly able to beat a placebo, they were able to beat a placebo and therefore the drug companies can say that they had an effect. But it turns out that it was not the medicine that was helping the people. It's the fact that the subjects were able to tell that they were on the medicine, which then clicked their minds into doing the work, not the medicine. This is a little complicated. I'm going I'm to do my best here to explain it to you. You give 100 people 
two medicines. 50 of them get neutral, 50 of them get the tested medicine. They don't know, supposedly, what they're getting, and the researchers who are giving it to them don't know what they're, who they're giving what to. That's why it's called double-blind. The researchers don't know what they're giving. The subjects don't know what they're taking. However, what these new researchers have discovered is that when you give subjects either placebo or a medicine, and they know in advance that half of them are going to get neutral nothing, and half of them are going to get the medicine. The ones who get any kind of reaction, which is the side effect of the medicine, which comes on immediately, that alerts them to the fact that they were the subjects who got the medicine. And then what happens is their minds go to work and do the job of relieving the depression. It's not the medicine that's doing the work. It's the placebo effect. And so what the researchers then did was they gave subjects a placebo that had side effects in it. So when the subjects felt the side effect of the placebo, they thought they were on the medicine. And guess what happened? Yes, they improved more than people who received placebo with no side effect. This is very serious, folks. It means that there may be millions of Americans out there who are taking medicine, thinking they're improving from the medicine, and they're actually getting damaged because the researchers also found that many of these same medicines are damaging our neurotransmitters, the chemicals in the brain which transmit information. If you know someone who's on these medicines, or if you yourself are on these medicines, please take the time to speak to your physician who's prescribing the medicine. Tell them what you heard on this program. Tell them to look further into it. You may be doing yourself a big favor and enhancing your own physical and mental health or that of a friend. Well, I almost feel apologetic for bringing this, this, this warning. I don't like coming from a place of, you have to look into this. There's something to be afraid of out there because we deal with so much of that in our culture, watch out for something out there. So what else can be done? What we know about depression in terms of natural ways of dealing with it, exercise is number one. There's tons of evidence about the positive effect of aerobic exercise on depression. Indiana University, going back 20 years, did seminal work on this. You can find it all over the internet. Of course, one of the issues always is when you're depressed is how do you have enough energy to get out there and do the, the exercise. And that's why popping a pill is so much easier. If you're laying down from depression, you can pop a pill with one hand. You can't go out and do ex aerobic exercise with one hand, but you can get together with some friends. Everybody can get together, hopefully, or at least one friend, and get yourself out there. Well, we'll talk more about natural ways of dealing with depression and ways of not having, of avoiding taking drugs which are potentially dangerous. We'll, we'll dedicate some programs to that in the future. But now I want to come to our treat for the day and introduce you to my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Lonnie Barback. Dr. Lonnie Barback, my word, she's a giant in the field, arguably the foremost expert on female sexuality in the United States. From her seminal book, no pun intended, the fulfillment uh, for yourself, the fulfillment of female sexuality, to the pause, positive approaches to perimenopause and menopause. 
Dr. Lonnie Barback has guided countless women through the stages of sexual discovery. She was one of the first co-directors of clinical training at the University of California Human Sexuality Program. She created the Women's Pre-Orgasmic Group Treatment Program. Her dozen books translated into the equal number of languages, 12 languages, have sold over 4 million copies. Let me just read to you some of the books that Lonnie has written. For Yourself, The Fulfillment of Female Sexuality. For Each Other, Sharing Sexual Intimacy. The Pause, Positive Approaches to Menopause. Seductions, Tales of Erotic Persuasion. 50 Ways to Please Your Lover. Loving Together, Sexual Enrichment Program. The Erotic Edge. And then, of course, the important book with with her partner, Dr. David Geisinger, Going the Distance, Finding and Keeping Lifelong Love. Every couple should be reading that book, Going the Distance. And then she went on, Erotic Interludes, Pleasures, The Intimate Male, on and on, a life career studying human sexuality and sharing this important information with us. In addition... Lonnie is a model of a woman balancing a career, a large career, a relationship with a wonderful man, and being a mother with an exemplary daughter who I've known all her life, I can speak to that, as well as being a businesswoman. Lonnie, Lonnie Barback is, is a woman for all seasons. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Lonnie. I don't know what I'm going to say after that one, Richard. Thank you. And, it's, and every bit of it is true, and you know it, and it's such a, a pleasure and a delight to say, because so many people, particularly women, uh, you know, ask themselves, how do, how do I do it? How do I do it? How do I have a career? How do I have a, a relationship with a man, or if you happen to be of the other persuasion, a relationship with a woman, an intimate relationship? And how do I have children? And... And, and how do I have a vacation? You just got back from vacation, didn't you? You were in in, uh, right. in, in England and in Budapest? London and Budapest. Yeah, we had a, a lovely two weeks of, of walking. I don't think we missed a street in London, and maybe not many in Budapest. We had a great time. A couple of headlines? Anything you can give us? A, a headline or two from the trip? The zoo in Budapest was fantastic. It's an Art Nouveau zoo. I mean, who would think you go to a zoo when you go to Budapest? The animals were two feet away from you. I could touch a rhino. Uh, The animals were so healthy. There was a Siberian tiger that was, you know, behind plate glass, but it was just a couple of feet away. I mean, I've never seen animals uh, up so close, wild animals, and in such healthy, wonderful condition. And the place itself was like, you know, Art Nouveau is very, you know, kind of dreamlike and uh, uh, lovely. Uh, buildings that are very fanciful. Is, it was it was a treat. The zoo in Budapest, and if it, you if you can't get there, I imagine you can look it up online, folks, and and uh, get possibly. a couple of pictures, right? Yeah, and the baths were great in Budapest too. It was really wonderful. Did you say baths? A topic near and dear to my heart. Yes, my dear. As a matter of fact, it made me think about Wilbur. You hot mineral baths in Budapest? Absolutely, thermal baths. They're famous for it. They have these wonderful, again, Art Nouveau and and ancient more ancient baths um, that have different uh, temperature hot tubs and saunas and steam rooms and swimming pools and massages. It's oh, my God. lovely. What it's, bliss. It's lovely. Yeah, it was. And what do we hear from the taxi drivers in London? Any news? Well, no, because I didn't take any taxis. We actually walked and took the underground. Ah. 
so taxis were not a part of our uh, trip this time. Do you pick up anything on the political situation there that uh, you want to pass along? No, not really. Um, okay. Nope. But you had a great time. We had a great time. Did you have your iPhone and your, um, and your uh, laptop with you? No, I did not have my laptop. Yes, I did have my iPhone. Uh, and uh, I did check my emails every uh, morning when I got up. Uh-huh. On, on the iPhone? On the iPhone, yeah. The reason I segued into that is because one of the main topics that I know you want to talk about today is the uh, interaction between modern technology and modern relationships. Right. And where do we want to start? Let's start well, with... Well, I was going, I was go going to say the reason I didn't, don't check the emails in the evening is because one of the negatives for emails um, that gets in the way of particularly sexual intimacy is, you know, couples go out, have a lovely time together. You know, they go to a nice evening, they spend the, you know, go to dinner, they spend an evening together, they feel very close, they come home, and they might have made love, except that they go check their email. And then they get involved otherwise, and it gets in the way of moving them into intimacy. So, so that's one of the ways that emails can uh, create a problem. All of a sudden, they're both on their emails, and as we know, forty mm-hmm. I, I, an hour and a half can go by just exactly. like nothing on the email. Exactly. I, I, I had it happen to me just the other day. I went to check an email, and, 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 and my companion said, uh, you, you realize you've been there for an hour and a half. Yeah, and you know, everything has a downside, has an upside. So you can also use emails as a way to enhance a relationship. I mean, you can send sexy text messages or emails as a way of, you know, a form of foreplay. Um, you can send love messages to your partner that they just sort of look at and pick up. Uh, so they can be used that way as well. But let's pick up on the takeaway, which is that you disciplined yourself to check the email in the morning and be done with it for the day so that it did not interfere with your relationship later on during the day with David. Right. Now, you're also saying that... And I didn't, didn't check into it during the day either. And I was noticing, you know, people get very hooked into their Blackberries or their, their iPhones or their cell phones. Uh, and I, I was at dinner. I think it was in London. And uh, we at this lovely restaurant, and there was a couple sitting across from us. And I kept watching him move his iPhone. You know, he, his attention would go to it. He'd check something out, then he'd be talking to her. Then he'd go back and he'd check it out, and he'd be talking to her. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I wonder if she's going to say anything or do anything. And then uh, we're sitting at the bar, so I couldn't see her uh, immediately. But then I looked around, and I saw she was looking at her iPhone. And I thought, there's not much hope for this relationship, really. I mean, they're out to dinner together, and they're both more in their iPhones and than they are in each other. So here they are with the privilege of going to a beautiful place. They're out in the evening. They're sitting together, and they're both somewhere else. Exactly. I mean, it's almost the opposite of being present. Yes, and, and there were actually another couple on another evening, uh, and the same thing was going on with the guy. And at one point, she did reach over and say something to him, and then I noticed he turned it off. So, um, you know, people are, are it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually disrespectful of your partner. If the telephone rings and you pick it up, if you're out to dinner or if you're at home and you're having dinner together, other people are intruding on your intimate relationship. They're taking priority, actually. You're saying other people are more important than you, the person that I love and I'm with right here and now. 
who's calling me on the phone or who I'm checking up on with my email while I'm sitting with you is more important to me than you. Exactly. Would it also be analogous, perhaps, two years ago, I'd be sitting with someone over a lovely dinner and all of a sudden I pull out a book or a newspaper and start to read it? Exactly. And that, of course, was not something that was typically done, and yet there's a comfort level with pulling out the phone and getting on it that's spreading, isn't there? And and people are getting uh, so involved in their work. For a lot of people, their workday never ends. That's one of the things that's afforded to us with high technology, isn't it? That we can work everywhere and anywhere. Exactly, all the time. And so intimate relationships get squeezed into a very small corner. So what, what you're teaching us by your model, by your example, then, is to, is to compartmentalize, to put parameters around the use of the technology. Exactly. Yeah, so, it's, it's essential. You think there's it, hope? Can people do that? Can they follow your lead, Lonnie? Uh, I know a lot of my, you know, my clients who do. You know, they they realized how it was getting in the way of their relationship. I had one couple where, um, for the woman, it was really a problem. The guy couldn't believe that it would make a difference in their relationship if he wasn't always available on a cell phone. And she kept trying to tell him. One day he said, okay, he just got tired of her getting angry at him and upset. He said, all right, I'll do it as an experiment. And he did it, and it dramatically changed the relationship because she was so much happier. And when he was there... You know, he was present for her, so she was more available to him. And, you know, he saw that it really, sincerely did make a difference. Do you, are people afraid to not have their phone? Is there a fear factor here, Lonnie? Are people afraid to not have their phone with them nowadays? Well, I think it's somewhere they expect that they need to be 100% of the time available to their boss, to, you know, to somebody and if they're not, they're going to lose their job, they're going to be seen as not being a good enough worker, and there is that level, I think, of fear. And your, your listeners may have other reasons that they are afraid to, uh, you know, put their cell phone down and uh, not be available all the time. I had one other couple, a young couple, where this is also a problem, and he said he had to be on call. He wasn't a physician. He was, you know, I, don't, I actually don't remember what he did, but he, he, he did need to be available. There was something where he was handling emergencies all the time. And uh, they, they finally did work it out that when they were driving in the car together, she was usually the driver, uh, he would not be looking at his cell phone, that, he, that it would be possible for him to have 20 minutes here and there where he was not available. And uh, that made a huge difference again. Gee, it's, it's sort of a sad, sad commentary that we're talking about 20 minutes here and there when he's that's not right. available, isn't it? Yep, but that's what he could work out. And then at the end of the evening, there was a certain time when he could turn it off, and that was okay. But during the day, he felt that he could not, not answer it. Now, what about the use of text messaging and emails in terms of intimacy? Is, is that a, a distance creator, or is it a, is it a distance uh, a, a minimizer? Well, like anything, you know, uh, things can be used for positive or negative. Uh, it can help intimacy, for example, if you're going to be late for something and you can let your partner know. So it's kind of, you know, caring and respectful and being able to keep in touch in that way and expectations aren't uh, set off so that you're not upset when your partner arrives in half hour late because you expect it. Uh, 
so it, it can be used as a positive. It can be used as a negative as well. I think that so many people are texting and not talking. They're not, uh, they're not with people. They're with technology. And so I'm not, and, and technology can be confusing. You can write an email and you mean it as something that's funny and somebody takes it differently and it hurts their feelings. And people get used to then trying to just read emails. And I, I'm worried, quite frankly, that younger generations are going to be less good at picking up emotional cues from people because they're getting their information in their relationship a lot of the time through the written word. You, and you, then the written word, by the way, is just now it's gotten it's degenerated into text English. So you're, you're saying that the uh, people would be uh, are losing skills of picking up cues that are visual cues by in terms of facial expression and body language, in terms of uh, the communication? Exactly. Have you seen that recent literature uh, indicating that women who use Botox are less able to pick up cues in other people than women who don't use Botox? It's, it's sort of related to what you're talking about. It's, it's for some that the, that the very skill of picking it up, because they themselves are freezing their own facial expression, this literature is suggesting that they also are then less able to pick up facial expression in other people. I didn't know that, but that's very interesting. You know, there's another um, there's other research that shows, for example, that if you smile, if you use the facial muscles to smile, that you actually can put yourself in a good mood. If you just chew on a pencil, yes, which requires yes, the same muscles, sure, it will make you feel happier. Yeah, is that Paul Ehrlich's work? I think my, I'm not sure. My I opinion. can't remember. Yeah, but that, I, I've seen that, that the smiling actually changes the neurotransmitters. Exactly. So I'm just wondering if the same thing is true as if you can't move certain muscles, if you then uh, somehow it changes. That, that, that doesn't... Oh, it's the flip side. If you can't uh, change, uh, move certain muscles that you, you actually... You may not feel certain things. Yeah, I don't uh -huh. know what, what it means about being able to read yeah. other people. That, that uh, connection, I'm not quite sure how that works. Yeah, actually, I, I read about the psychologist in New York who, who uh, picked up on that smile data that you were just talking about mm -hmm. and was uh, uh, starting smiling clubs and laughing clubs. He, uh -huh. he, he figured out that if you go into a room and there are a bunch of people just uh, laughing out loud and you go in and you laugh with them, them, that that in and of itself also changes your, your neurotransmitters and you walk out, you can go into these laugh bars, laugh for five or ten minutes and come out feeling better. Feeling better. That's great. <laughs> Very cute. Yeah. You know, one of the older technologies, you know, TVs, again, have both positive and negatives. Um, you know, the positive is you can just curl up together and watch TV together, which can, you know, be nice and relaxing and something to do in the evening. But uh, couples who have TVs in their bedroom. Uh, end up having often less of a sexual relationship. If I can get a couple to move the TV out of the bedroom, it increases their uh, sexual frequency. Because it's so easy just to lie there, turn on the TV, and then you get hypnotized. And you're just watching it. And you're not even maybe enjoying what you're watching, but you're just kind of hypnotized into just staying with it until you're exhausted, and then you go to sleep. I want to I I underline something you just said for our listeners. You just heard Lonnie say that if you move the TV out of the bedroom, your sexual frequency will increase. Mm -hmm. Assuming you have a good relationship. Uh, yeah, assuming you have a good relation, a decent <laughs> yeah. sexual relationship to begin with. But yeah. yes, that it will. Now, l let's segue from moving the television set out of the bedroom. What about 
bringing laptops into bed. What are your well, thoughts on that? Well, you know, a couple can sort of read for a while and maybe, you know, it's it's a little bit different because you can put the book down. You don't get quite as hypnotized. And the same thing is true with a, with a laptop. It can either be something that just totally hypnotizes you so that it takes away from the relationship, or if you put boundaries on it, then, you know, it, it's like reading a book. It's like reading so a book until you be. start doing email related to business, and then all of a sudden your mind is in business and you're no longer in an intimate mood. And that's absolutely true. You know, I wonder what your listeners think about some of these things, if they have encountered any of these issues and they're stuck with any of them, or if they found some ways to improve things. Folks, you're getting a direct invitation from Dr. Lonnie Barbeck. Here's your opportunity to talk to her. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. Pick up the phone, dial, and ask Dr. Lonnie Barbeck a question or, or share with us some of, some of how you're handling the intrusion of technology into our most uh, intimate uh, lives. And maybe coming up with some creative, positive ways of using it. What are some of your other concerns while the listeners are considering calling us on the phone? What are some of your other concerns and interests in the interaction, the interface between technology and and intimacy, particularly sexual intimacy, intimacy, but all forms of intimacy, of course? Well, you know, a, a real issue that comes up for a lot of people is the issue of Internet porn. Uh huh. And the effect that that can have on a on a sexual relationship, and again, that's something that has both an upside and a downside for people. You know, I, uh, you know, a very big downside is the availability uh, of this kind of explicit and sometimes very kinky sexual material for for our young children who find this and then get overly sexualized at a young age and also uh, start to experience, you know, certain acts uh, as arousing sexually that may create problems for them later on. It can be difficult. uh, It can be a positive for people who are, you know, don't have a relationship and it allows them one other form of of sexual release. And in in a couple's relationship, sometimes... um, one partner thinks usually it's the woman who thinks that the man is it's almost like having an affair when he, when he's watching pornog- when he's watching pornography and if it takes away from their intimate relationship so that his sexual expression is in relationship to a monitor uh that's uh one thing if it's a you know kind of an addition like lots of couples have discrepancies in desire one person wants sex more frequently than the other one and, you know, that needs to be worked out. And sometimes that way to work that out is one person uses masturbation as a way to equalize the difference so that they're not, you know, sort of impinging upon their partner more than their partner feels um, comfortable with. Is, is, is pornography, uh, as we know it in the United States, a, a manifestation of what the American public want to view and watch and see that perhaps they're not able to do or they, or it's going to titillate their their sexuality or is pornography what a, a bunch of pornographers in southern california uh, want to put out to the public in other words do we have supplier induced demand here where the pornographers are creating pornography or do we have the the public making you know demand well you know we- if you look at it from the beginning the, the earliest um, erotic 
material that was visual or in movies or whatever, uh, were almost kind of cute and charming, you would say. You know, they were, they were women in various poses, sometimes not even completely uh, naked. They were somewhat clad. And uh, it was it was very uh, very tame, is what I would say. And then I think what happens is, you know, you have to keep reaching to new areas if you're uh, creating something. You know, you've done that. So what are you going to do next? So it's the same with cars, same with bicycles, same with clothing. You have right. To, every year you have to come out with a new exactly. product. Okay, yep. so here we are in pornography and... Yeah, and so I think that's what's happened is how, how what limit can you go to next? And what haven't you? What isn't out there? And what new can you put out there? And and since sex is kind, of, you know, is, is tied to the forbidden, um, you know, the things that you might not want to do, you might be still titillated by watching somebody else do. Uh, might be interested in just, you know, seeing what else is out there. But by seeing what else is out there, doesn't that then? give people permission to try that in ways that they never did, isn't it? Doesn't it sort of lead the way? I mean, like, there, there are several authors have pointed out that the, mm-hmm. that, that pornography in, the, in recent years has gotten much rougher. There's a, right. lot, a lot more uh, humiliation of women, of pulling their hair, of double mm-hmm. penetration, of mm-hmm. triple penetration, of all yeah. kinds of, you know, pretty, pretty rough and, and possibly heinous acts. Mm-hmm. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that it does obviously, for some people, give them permission to try things, and for other people, it's not an interest. The, the, the problem that I see, the biggest problem that I see is really for, um, well, two. One, one is for youth, because they haven't yet formed their own ideas about their sexuality, and it's kind of getting formed for them. By watching, and, the, by watching the films, that, yes. yeah, that's teaching them what sexuality is, yes. huh? Right, and for people who are uh, who are unable to control themselves, it's uh, giving so who end up being violent criminals and end up being sex offenders. Uh, it gives them uh, more permission because can't you see it's out there? Other people are doing it. There's nothing really wrong with it, and so a mind that is a little distorted in the first place could use that as fuel. So those are the dangers. Let's talk about the positives. How can people positively benefit from from the from? Po- well, they can watch it together, couples. Yes, yes. And that's the way to enhance their relationship. It's, is, you know, is, there like, stu- is there stuff out there that's that that uh, that it's agreeable to women to watch? Well, you know, I don't know what's out on the internet. I'm I'm, I'm sorry that that's not something that I actually watch <laughs> myself. But uh, it would be you for know, there are movies. Only. There are movies. Uh, I know um, Deborah Shames and I put together a, a few erotic movies that were aimed at women and the and couples. Because men will watch a whole range of things, whereas women are more selective. And the movies we did had a storyline. They had an emotional relationship. They did not have um, ejaculation shots. Uh, They didn't even have erection shots, actually. But they had uh, simulated sex. And uh, it was was a way to bring women into something that would be more uh, gentle and arousing at that point point in time. I think younger women now are more, uh, they're just more used to and more comfortable with more explicit kinds of uh, uh, sexual 
uh, images. You know, I, I was I, I had the privilege of uh, being invited by you to the opening of that uh, cabin fever, and I remember uh-huh. it. And right. I thought it was very courageous of you, uh, given the the nature of our culture, to to risk your reputation. Um, you know, as an authentic, uh, you know, p- professional in our field, uh, to to uh, to put forth that movie for women. And as I recall, you you took some heat for uh, for doing that, didn't you? Yeah, I actually took a little bit of heat for it. But, you know, that was a long time after I did Pleasures, where I was I really held that book off for probably five years, and I, I had wanted to do it for a long time because I was working with women who were uh, pre-orgasmic, and masturbation was a technique I was using with them, and they'd go home and they'd masturbate, and they'd say, you know, I don't have fantasies, and I'm not really turned on, and I don't, you know, my partner's not there, so uh, I can't get aroused. And I thought, why isn't there, and, this, and the stuff that's written, they would say, is, is written for men. It's disgusting. And I thought, why isn't there anything written for women? And that's when I thought I really have to put out a compendium of erotica that's aimed specifically at women, mm-hmm. and which gave me the idea of doing pleasures, which is women writing about real experiences, so that it wasn't even fantasies. It was really what women liked as a as a as a manual and a help for women that I was working with. And then I was, you know, only in my twenties, and so I thought I was going to get creamed if I put this out, uh, you know, in terms of my um, my professional credentials. And so I waited about five years. And actually, that was when I was really surprised that I didn't get more heat. Because when I went and did my um, the book tour for it, uh, people, you know, said to me, finally, you've come out with this. The only thing that men would say is, uh, are there any pictures? No woman ever asked if there <laughs> were pictures, but men asked if there were pictures. Actually, you came out with two books at the time uh, for women. Wasn't one? One was called Pleasures, nineteen eighty-six, and then you did something called Erotic Interludes, Tales Told by Women, didn't you? Correct. That was fantasies, and yes. then I did uh, the Erotic Edge, which were stories. I tried to compare the differences between erotica written by men and written by women, and so I did that. And then I did Seductions. So that was the last one, and then I was done doing erotic stories. Yeah, <laughs> done enough of them. Well, you know, I, we, we've got to talk for a moment about about what's going on in our country. That that a, a prominent expert in human sexuality, you know, would take heat for for putting forth a a, a very gentle, kinder and gentler movie for women. I mean, what is what's this? Are we making any progress in our in our judgmental morality about human well, sexuality? Well, that was a while ago. Yes, it was. I, I, you know, I that's think we probably got a good twenty years. Well, are we uh, making progress, Lonnie? Are we are we are we getting to a place where sexuality is considered more just like food and water and part of the human condition? Or are we still beating each other up about? Uh, well, it? I think it's both. It's both. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's a, a lot of the religious right that is uh, very negative about uh, sexuality. And uh, there's a lot of the left and uh, and even people who are maybe very conservative but who are very uh, open in terms of sex and feeling very comfortable with it. Do, do we have an understanding, do we have a, a better understanding of where this group you're identifying as the, as the religious right, where they're coming from in terms of their... Their attitudes, I mean, there's no way that they're not doing sexuality because they're having children. Right. And yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's a belief that, uh, that it will lead to people being totally unrestrained, that if you um, are more open with your sexuality, it will lead to something worse. It's sort of like marijuana will lead to heroin. 
today's kind of today's the idea. Today's for, fornication is tomorrow's anarchy. That's right. Yeah, it just it will just lead to everybody being you know orgies and out of control and the you know they're the end of relationships as we you know as, as we, we know, know it. Yeah. yeah, we've got somebody calling in. Let's we're going to take okay. a call. Put him on, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Well, are you there? We yes. Have, we have a very quiet caller right no, now. No, Bonnie. I no, I hear them. Oh, you can? Well, we can't. Can you hear any? I can't hear anything at all, Michael. Well, did you hear a question, Lonnie? No, I just heard a, a voice. Are you there? Nope. Okay, well, let's come no. back. Let's come okay. back to our topic. It, it was probably okay. a, a oh. cell phone that got a little... Uh, Disconnected. Anything else we want to talk about, about with regard to the interaction between pornography and technology and human relations? Otherwise, we're going to move on to another topic. Okay. We'll move on. Well, there's, you wanted to talk some more about what we call, say, hard technology, uh, the use of computers and how it's interfacing with human relationships. And um, what about using the computer and technology in a positive way when people are traveling, is there room for that, or are you suggesting pick up the phone and let's hear the human voice, or, or no, is it I all think of the above? I think there's room for it um, as an ad, as you know, as anything. It has a positive and as a negative. Yes, uh, but it's not the same as picking up the phone and being able to relate to the person. It's really, for example, emails have a great place for um, being able to express yourself when there's an issue that's upsetting you and it's likely to lead to a very reactive conversation. And it's sometimes much easier for you to write uh, what it is that you're upset about so that you can think about it and do it in a way that is going to be most uh, easy to uh, hear for your partner. And it may be easier for your partner to read it than to be faced with what might seem very critical or, you know, um, offensive in some way, uh, upsetting and, and uh, to you as, as the he- person hearing it. So it can end up enabling people to talk about issues that are really hot buttons and get to a place where then they can go further with it in person. But the key is always to go further with it in person, when, when, uh, ultimately, isn't it? If, well, unless they get it totally resolved through the email. Oh, and then there's nothing further then to go on Then there's nothing further with. to go on to. But yeah. if they get it mostly understood, then they can sit there and, and kind of talk to each other and uh, get it resolved. But if you're, if you're traveling, it's very nice to hear you know, an email or a text message from your partner to say, I'm fine and I'm enjoying myself or whatever it is that they're going to say. And especially if there's a time difference, you know, it's easy then to send something and have it received during the other person's time zone. But it's, I would say most people would say it's even nicer to hear the person's voice and get to talk and chat about what's happening and feel the loving feelings and, you know, even maybe have phone sex. You and David uh, have one of the most successful long-term relationships that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Do do you two use technology uh, between each other, or do you use phones? Let's get down to what you personally do. Almost not at all. Almost not at all with technology. Yeah, because David has nothing to do with technology virtually. I mean, he will <laughs> he will he will do email on occasion with a few people, 
you know, that that's mostly sending interesting articles or, you know, jokes or, you know, stories or something back and forth. But uh, that's it. Uh Uh, You know, we use it if I want to tell him I do our traveling plans and, and, you know, social engagements. And I will email those to him so that he has them in writing. Or I will phone them to him so he gets them off of a message machine so he can write them down. Uh-huh. So those are the two ways. But I would say during the day, we never call each other, uh, virtually never, unless we have a reason, which is to say, you know, we're gonna, I'm coming home late, or do you want me to pick up dinner, or, you know, something sort of practical that way. Uh, I'm on my way home. Do you want me to get something? Th- those would be our phone calls, and they are, you know, they may be a couple of weeks. So if you don't use technology, <laughs> except yeah. for except for data, like we're going to be going so-and-so, right. as you're telling me, and you yep. don't use the phone. And he doesn't text. Okay, so tell us a few of the things that you do use to stimulate romance and intimacy in your relationship. In your long, How long have you two been together? 26 years. 26 years. What are some of the things you actually do then to stimulate intimacy and, and romance, if not technology? Well, I mean, for example, we stopped. Uh, nobody answers the phone during dinner. Ah. We, we discontinued that many, many years ago. A practical tool, folks. Yeah, unless we're expecting a call from a patient. Or, and there's, or, some, or, there's or, potential or, emergency. Or and Tess. We'll tell, no, no, not even Tess. Not even Tess, okay. Nope, we don't even look. We don't know who it is. Okay. But if we're expecting, a, if, I, if I have a patient who might be suicidal or I'm really worried yeah, about or he yeah, does, yeah. Sure. Then, we, then we say we're going to be checking to see who the caller is. Yeah. Um, so I, that's, and that's very rare. Um, you know, we have, we've always had uh, date night when Tess was young. She's now 24, but and it w- well on her own, but we managed to have a date night every week so that we made sure that we connected and we had time to go out to dinner and be together and and be sexual. And so we, we made sure that we attended to that. Um, what else do we do? How about uh, we took yeah. we took tango lessons together. Oh, that's uh, fa- that was fun. Tell us a little about that. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> it was fun, but we, we you know we both of us uh, don't have a right foot and a left foot. I guess you say we have two left feet, so uh, we were not great at it. No, but, but, but you don't have to be for to fun. Do. Oh, it and was it's, fun. It's, it's, it was really it's, fun. It's, it's, a tango is sexy too, isn't yeah. it? A sexy kind of music. Yeah, that's that was what led us to it. Okay, I'm going to review is. here for our listeners. <laughs> you do email in the morning, particularly on trips, and say goodbye for the rest of the day. No mm-hmm. calls during dinner. You have a private dinner, just you, you and David. Mm-hmm. You have a date night on a mm-hmm. weekly basis, at least mm-hmm. once a week. Mm-hmm. You recently took tango lessons, which is a fun thing to do together. Anything else you can mm-hmm. think? Think of from your personal life that you two do. We make sure uh, during the, especially during the summers, we take a, try to take a day a weekend, and and we do this because we have very separate lives. We each have our work. Uh, David has his art and his gardening. I have a number of other projects and things that I do. So, and we don't talk to each other a lot during the day. So we don't probably spend as much time together that uh, as you know, an awful lot of couples do. So on a weekend, we would uh, make sure that we have a day, let's say, that we go off and we visit a little, a new town, some small place somewhere in the Bay Area, 
Uh-huh. And so we take the day and, and or at least the afternoon and evening and do that. So that's Splendid. one of the things we do. Splendid. But we have to work at this because we are so, you know, for us it's that we're more separate. Well, that's why I'm asking And so we have to work on being more connected. Sure. There are a lot of people who spend more time together and actually could do better with a little more space. That uh-huh. would enhance their sexual uh, desire. Well, the two of the things that really stand out for me uh, of, of what I've written down here are the weekly date night, date night every week, mm-hmm. and one day on the weekend together just exploring, just going out and, and, and looking at new things, but being together for the day. Right, without necessarily an agenda, particularly yeah. just kind of a flowing day. Uh-huh. <clears throat> By the way, when you're on that, uh, that day on the weekend out together, what, cell phones? And what is the place of them? No, you know, when we're together, we don't answer phones. And also, I have to say that my cell phone, probably only three people have the number of it. So I have people leave messages on my work answering machine, and then I call in when I want to know. So I am not so available to other people. And particularly when you're on your day with your man. Yeah, but pretty much never. And David never has a cell phone on. I can't even get him. <laughs> that, <So it's> like, <laughs> yeah, I know that from experience when I try to, when we and I meet for dinner in a parking lot and, uh-huh. <laughs> and we're, right. we're circling around <laughs> looking rather than calling. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No cell phones while you're on that day. Anything else no. come to mind in terms of how you enhance your own personal intimacy and, and avoid the, the traps of particularly, as you pointed out to us, of letting anyone anytime interfere with, with the uh, with the relationship you're having. No, I think those okay. are kind of the main things that you know to to talk about issues when they come up, so that we're not harboring uh, oh, that, that negative sounds, feelings, so that, that, that we important. feel turned on and interested in each other when you know we have an opportunity to make love. So. That's there. Making sure that we have no, enough time un- let's un- to let's make un- love. We got We have to underline that one before we go to the time for making. I want to underline dealing with issues as they come up, rather than letting them linger, folks. Right. That sounds very important. And then making time for sexual intimacy. Intimacy. We're going to talk more about making time. But I want to do, take this call, Alani. Please put her on. Okay. Uh, put him or her on mic. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, Richard. This is Howard. Hi, Howard. Howard, hi. How are you, Lonnie? Good morning. Welcome back. <laughs> this is Dr. Howard Levine, folks, calling in from uh, uh, Marin County, California. Hi. What do you have to say today, Howard? Oh, I have a lot to say. Uh, first of all, I love listening to Lonnie and you. Your programs always are exciting and interesting to me. Thank you. But I'm interested in what Lonnie, if, whether Lonnie read the July 3rd New York Times magazine, um, in which the front cover says, Infidelity Keeps Us Together. Right. An article by Mark Oppenheimer. Uh huh. And whether you have anything to say about that. Sure. What makes a happy marriage? That's the first question. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. And I'd want, like, can, and, I, can and, I do about that first before you give me another question to confuse me? Yeah, but let's, oh, yeah. Let, yeah, let's <laughs> let Lonnie, let's let you answer that. But Howard, after Lonnie does, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, on this Infidelities Keeps Us Together article. Come on, Lonnie, let's hear from you. Well, you know, I, I think that a lot of it was um, the point of view of Dan Savage, who is, uh, and, and was taking information from the gay male uh, community. And male sexuality is often different from female sexuality. So the idea that I liked from it 
was the fact of the honesty, that if you can talk about your sexual desires or your needs or your wants with your partner, that can lead to opening things up in a way that could work for both of you. And I thought that, and the honesty about that, I thought was really the most important part of it. The, I mean, for a lot of people, you know, people are different. For some people, having an open sexual relationship can end up uh, being divisive, end up, uh, you know, being uh, more, feeling more protected of themselves, unless they're having the sexual relationship together, you know, with, with other people which can be more enhancing. But if they're doing it separately, it can sometimes be divisive, even if they know about it. So that can be a downside. Uh, and, and different people have different ideas about what's okay sexually for the other person. You know, for David and I actually talked about this the other day as a result of the article. And I was saying that it would be fine with me if, you know, you were deciding you needed a last fling with a prostitute and you were going to use you know, protection, and I wasn't going to be in any health danger, I wouldn't have any problem with that. Um, but I'd have more of a problem if you met somebody and uh, you were out kissing. That would be more uh, threatening to me than having intercourse with someone that you had no relationship with. Because so, the kissing implies a certain kind of intimacy and relationship right. where the fornication itself doesn't. Exactly. Well, how about if we move to, uh, how about just flirting? Well, um, it depends upon, that's again where you're talking about honesty in the relationship. Right. If you're right. honest about it, and you can say, listen, let's flirt, it, you know, you can bring the good sexual feelings back home. It's a great way to to stimulate a sexual relationship by flirting with other people, as long as your boundaries are really clear. So as long as your boundaries are clear, and as long as your honesty is, is right online, correct? Right, right. because think... if you're flirting and the other person is seeing it as... Uh, you know, in some way, uh, you know, against them, or you're you know, you're interested in somebody else, and they feel left out, and there's no, you know, there's no talking about it. That could create a rift in the relationship. What uh, do you think? No, I totally agree with that. I think mm-hmm. it's, I think the central point of this is the honesty and the level of discussion, or what you and David call the rap. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I think. For conversation about what what one thinks feels and can express to the other partner, which then creates a deeper in- intimacy, including one's own sexual fantasies mm-hmm. that might get uh, shared uh, and brought into uh, the sex life of the partner. Exactly. Including, even uh, 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 in your comments about looking at pornography, I think that uh, pornography can also enhance that, again, with, as long as that's accessible to both people, and both people like it, and both people talk about it, and both people can be stimulated by it. Same right. As Checking out. That's my thought on that. Yeah. No, no, I agree 100%. You know, we've got, we've got a very complicated issue here because we've got hypocrisy that comes into it in terms of people doing one thing and saying another, which mm-hmm. relates to honesty about, uh, because if there's total honesty, then we reduce the hypocrisy, of course. But at the same time, thrown into the mix is what uh, David brought to us when he was on this radio program is that over 50% of the marriages in the United States fail. So we've got a, 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 a somewhat of a failing system, and now we're possibly introducing openly something that is extremely complicated, but at the same time, we might say, we're not really introducing it because it's going on anyway. Absolutely. 
But it's been going on in a very subvertive way. Yes. So, uh, so it was people experienced betrayal. Yes. And are hurt, and it, it then undermines the solidarity of the relationship. And you know, when in this article, when uh, Savage was saying that, you know, the most important thing is that couples stay together. You have to think about the kids. Kids, you have to stay together. But if you're not dealing with what's going on in terms of your emotional relationship and you're not really talking about it and working it through, or you're feeling betrayed and there's no way to get that resolved, then you're not really showing your kids a really good intimate relationship for them to have, you know, to, you're not modeling good intimacy for them. You know, I totally agree with that. Yes, of course, you know, one of David's quotes that I love so much is is that a relationship is as good as its dialogue, uh-huh. right? Right, and, yes. And, and isn't part of what we're talking about here the the imperative of making time for the dialogue, of making the actual undivided time without the cell phone, without the computer, without a television on, without anything on, just to really sit and talk with our yeah. with our yeah. most intimate person? Yeah, Richard, you just brought us back full circle. Yes. Exactly. Yes, and isn't that what you're what you're bringing to us from your own life and your own successful relationship, Lonnie? Twenty seven years that that you spend a day uh, on the weekend together, and that you spend an evening in your busy lives together, where you can't really talk to one another. Exactly, and then you ask Howard, and he would say the same thing. I believe. Tell us, oh, Howard. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how how long have you and Stephanie been together, Howard? Uh thirty. Two years, I believe. Thirty-two yeah, years. Another, 32 years. Uh, yeah, another long and and. And, and six, we'll have a very loving relationship. You have but, a wonderful so relationship, Howard, Howard. What do you think accounts for the the health of your relationship? Why your relationship works oh, so well? Oh, Lonnie, you've observed it over the years. <laughs> <laughs> constant dialogue. Constant dialogue. I think it's a constant dialogue. I think uh, the thing that I respect so much about you and David and uh, is that you have encouraged that both in us and in all of your friends, and um, and we believe in, you know, ongoing, co- constant dialogue. We talk about stuff all the time, yeah. I and mean, that's real. Mm-hmm. I'm trying together. And, and uh, anyway, that's the... But, I, you know, I really wanted to ask you another question today, Lonnie, and because I, I'm not... We all know each other, and I, but I want to ask you something that we haven't talked about before that is related. To this technology. feels like the beach in Zihuataneja. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> but Lonnie, uh, I recently had a conversation with a young man um, who uh, was telling me about a large group of his friends. This is a guy about 30, in his late 30s, maybe early 40s, who were telling me about a large group of his friends who would prefer to have virtual relationships. Mm-hmm. rather than what they called meat relationships, and he was using meat in the terms M-E-A-T. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, that, uh, that this, these relationships uh, in these virtual worlds, of which I know nothing, to tell you the truth, uh, can people fall in love, have sex, um, uh, you know, buy property together, uh, do all kinds of stuff in the second world, a virtual online type of relationship. I'm not talking about direct, um, you know, email, but going beyond living in virtual worlds together. And I thought, I wondered if you had any ideas about that and the relationship of that to the more recent sexting scandals uh, where people do online kinds of stuff. Is that well, the, well, the first thing, you know, I, I mean, I, that was 
part of what I brought up earlier, where my concern is that uh, being so technologically involved is getting in the way of dealing with the more difficult kind of face-to-face intimate relationships. And people are, are, I mean, it is hard to deal with somebody and their feelings and to read them. And, and the more you get into a virtual relationship, the more you're in a fantasy. Right. You know, and, and so and it's only you. For, it's not, for, it's easy. For, I mean, you and I, these guys were arguing for the pleasures of virtual relationship because you look like anything you want. Exactly. And you can be anything you want, and yet you can still evoke emotional and loving feelings in, in people that you may not ever see. In, in the meat world, meaning M-E-A-P, where you can touch them. And that may be the future. Yeah, that's what worries me. <laughs> I, th- we I don't up. know. You, this idea of everybody just this? being uh, connected to their uh, computers and in their own little box, you know, it just gets you to the orgasmatron idea. <laughs> you know, you're just exactly. right there in your little box and you're just having your own relationships basically with yourself and projections of yourself and you lose the ability to uh, read other people's feelings and empathize with them and have a caring community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My answer to your question, Howard, I was thinking about these virtual relationships. I'm, rel- I'm reminded of the Woody Allen quote where he says, some people are trying to figure out how many universes there are and they're out in the cosmos and I can hardly find my way around Chinatown. Right. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking for meat and potatoes stuff here that people can use in their daily, regular people can use in their day-in and day-out relationships. And I'm, I'm looking at things like what Lonnie's saying about date night and about weekends together and about what you and Stephanie do in terms of spending time together. And I think the bottom line, and I've got to bring this to a close now, I'm getting heavy signals here. I want to thank, first of all, you, Dr. Howard Levine, for calling in and joining us today. Please do so anytime. My and, pleasure. And, thank and, you. And Dr. Lonnie Barback, my, my dear friend and colleague, I love having you on the program. You're clear as a bell. You want to look up Lonnie Barback on Amazon.com for any of her books. They're all wonderful. The New York Times article that Dr. Howard Lafine referred you to is the July 3rd, 2011 New York Times magazine. It's called Infidelity Keeps Us Together. I want to thank you all for being with us today. It was a wonderful program. I look forward to being with you again in exactly two weeks. So until then, I thank my staff, my engineer, Mike Delora, and this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. It is, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.